Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, where we left off two weeks ago, uh, last week via camera, I preached on Psalm 12, a psalm of national lament. We've been through a lot, through social isolation, separation, uh, through job loss, uh, through difficulties in our nation racially, and the tension there through the vestiges of systemic injustice, uh, and it's been difficult, and it is right and proper for Christians to lament. We live in a fallen world, and we are to cry out to God over its brokenness and our own brokenness. In fact, we even see Jesus in the passage before us lamenting over the lost. And so it's right and it's proper to lament during times like this and to cry out to God as our only hope of refuge. Luke chapter 19, this morning we'll begin reading in verse 41. Out of reverence and respect for God's Word, let's stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those souls, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes of the elders came up, and they said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where he came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together. Father, through the ministry of your word and spirit, would you continue to knit our hearts together as we gather? And would you continue to knit our hearts to your heart? That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the things which cause your heart to beat would cause our hearts to beat. That your holy passion would become ours. Work that grace in and through the ministry of your word and spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In 2004, Mel Gibson directed a film entitled The Passion of the Christ. The movie's based on what the church historically is referred to as Passion Week, that time from which Jesus entered into Jerusalem to the time of his death, burial, and resurrection. The word passion can mean suffering as it does when we often refer to 
the Passion Week. But passion also refers to something else, to a strong, barely controllable emotion, an intense driving or overwhelming feeling or conviction. And it's this latter definition of passion that we see in the life of Jesus in our passage of Scripture this morning. As Jesus looks over Jerusalem, as He enters into the city, as He goes into the temple, Jesus displays a strong, barely controllable, intense emotion and overwhelming sense of devotion. We see Jesus' passion. First, we see Jesus is passionate about the salvation of the lost. As He looks over Jerusalem, He begins to weep. He, he weeps over the lostness of the city. Kent Hughes says, The tears of Christ measure the value of your soul. And I would add, the blood of Christ does so even more. He began to weep over the lostness of the city. And it wasn't the first time he had done this. Back in Luke chapter 13, we saw Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Look again at this lamentation of our Savior, this weeping of Him. Verse 42, here's His prayer. Would that you, even you, you hear His intensity, you hear His plea, had known on this day the things that make for peace. In essence, he's saying, would that you look to me, the Prince of Peace. But because you have not, now these things are hidden from you. Why? Because the Prince of Peace, the light of the world, had come into their midst, and they chose to close their eyes. And what we see here again is a judicial hardening of God hiding from a people because they deliberately chose not to to see in their unbelief. And as a result, verse 43, we see absolute devastation of Jerusalem being prophesied by our Savior. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem here is a prophetic lament because Jerusalem had rejected Jesus as their only hope of peace with God because they had rejected their Messiah. Jesus said, devastation and judgment will come upon you. And indeed, in A.D. 70, under the leadership of General Titus, Jerusalem was leveled. The, the beautiful temple, the magnificent temple, the crown jewel of Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The walls and the buildings of the city were leveled to the ground. And the streets ran red with the blood of men and women and children. Titus leveled Jerusalem with the exception of three towers. He left three towers standing. Why? Back then you didn't have a camera. You didn't have pictures to remember how glorious and grand the city once was. And so he left three towers so that they could see those towers and remember how magnificent the city once was but is no more. Jerusalem was reduced to red blood, rubble, and ruin because of judgment. They had rejected their only hope of peace with God. Jesus reminds us of the reality that judgment is well-deserved. In verses 42 through 44, 
A dozen times Jesus uses the word you. He's emphatic. He lays the blame at the feet of the unbeliever. But every opportunity with the Prince of Peace in their midst, and yet they rejected him. A dozen times you driving home the people's willful rejection, refusal, and unwillingness to repent and believe the gospel and embrace Jesus Christ as he's freely offered by faith. And seeing the hardness of their heart, nevertheless, Jesus weeps. Why? Because even to this day, the Almighty still takes no delight in the punishment of the wicked. Jesus wept. He remains passionate for the lost. And it begs the question, what about me? What about you? Where are our hearts? When is the last time we literally wept over the lostness of an individual, of a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, the world. Are our hearts broken as our Savior's heart was broken over the lostness of the world? Do we pray for our loved ones? Do we plead with them to turn to Christ and to embrace the Prince of Peace? One Monday morning, Scottish Presbyterian pastor Robert Murray McShane met up with his friend and fellow pastor Andrew Bonar. McShane had heard that Bonar had preached on hell the day before, and he simply asked him, Did you preach on hell with tears, with a broken heart over the lost? I've heard me say before Francis Schaeffer was once asked by a, a skeptic, he said, what, What's going to happen to me if I reject your Jesus? And the great apologist, a man with a brilliant mind, simply lowered his head and he began to weep. Jesus wept over the plight of the poor, over the reality that those who reject him would spend eternity in a Christless hell. And he wept. And may his church and the people who bear his name be passionate about the salvation of the lost as well. We also see that Jesus is passionate about corporate worship. He goes from pleading and praying over Jerusalem into Jerusalem, the city itself, and he enters the temple as prophesied in Malachi chapter 3. But the kind of entrance Jesus makes into the temple is a far cry from what many people today would expect. Far from gentle Jesus, meek and mild, he comes in, and he drives out those who were selling, we're told in verse 45. But Luke, in his summary fashion, paints a scene rather mildly. But if we read the other gospel accounts, we realize that Jesus really created a stir. This was a violent scene. The word drive out is the same word used in which when he drove out demons. He came in and he overturned tables. He, he cleared their chairs. He blocked the way from anybody carrying anything through. He created a real violent scene. Perhaps you've seen on videos where somebody just sort of loses it in public. They become angry and start screaming and throwing things. Well, that's Jesus. Only he didn't lose it. And there was no sin. This was a calculated, holy passion for right Worship of the living God. The disciples later would remember from Psalm 69, it was zeal for his house that consumed him. Now perhaps knowing the situation a little better would help us understand Jesus' action. 
What's going on in that scene? Well, foreign currency that was used throughout the nation and surrounding nations needed to be exchanged for Jewish currency in order to purchase animals for sacrifice. And so money changers were there, but they were charging exorbitant prices to change money from foreign currency into Jewish currency, and no doubt those selling the animals jacked up the prices. And so getting into the temple and worship would be kind of like trying to buy a ticket to the natty. Not a lot of people could afford to do so. And so even pigeons were mentioned. Why were pigeons mentioned in this? Because pigeons were the sacrifice afforded to the poor. And so what's going on here is the poor are being excluded from worship. The average worshiper is being hindered because there is a crooked, commercialized, money-making monopoly, and all of it was overseen by the chief priests. Josephus, the Jewish historian, would later refer to the chief priest during that time as the great procurer of money. And so worshipers were being taken advantage of. The poor were being excluded. And so Jesus comes in with his hot zeal for right worship. And he quotes Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall not be this, it shall be a house of prayer. And he quotes from Jeremiah 7, 11, You've turned the temple of God, the house of God, into a den of robbers. Now the location of where this was taking place is also important. Where they exchanged the money and where they sold the animals was in the outermost court of the Gentiles. And so in essence, what were the religious leaders doing? They were not only excluding the poor, they were not only excluding and inhibiting many of the common worshipers, they were deliberately seeking to exclude the Gentiles from the worship of God. And yet if you know your Old Testament history, this was one of the very reasons, one of the very purposes for which the temple was built. Listen to Solomon's prayer and the dedication of the temple. We'll jump in in the middle of his prayer. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all that which this foreigner calls to do, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. You see, that temple, much like the establishment of the church, is not simply a place for God's people to gather together for worship, but it is to be a beacon, a lighthouse for the world. That's why Jesus quotes from, from Isaiah 56. Because the prayer ends this way. For my house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples, for all nations. There's the passion of Christ. There's the heart of God laid bare in the gospel. And so unlike the religious leaders of his day, Jesus clears the temple not of Gentiles, but for Gentiles. That we might gather from every nation 
and tribe and language as the redeemed people of God. There is Christ's passionate vision for His church that there be worship among His people that goes to the nations. It's an all-embracing kingdom vision, the passion of Christ. Phil Riken, president of Wheaton College, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, writes this. The angry entrance that Jesus made to the temple shows where his passions lie and therefore where our passions ought to lie. Jesus has a passion for the lost, for reaching people that are outside the community of faith. He has a passion for the poor, for remembering to show mercy to people that society has forgotten. He has a passion for justice, for standing against persons and systems who perpetrate evil. He has a passion for prayer and for worshiping God with sincerity of true heart. He has a passion for making the life of faith the main business of life. He asks then, what is your passion? We get excited about this time of year often in this area. We're passionate about our football. And Jesus is saying that passion should be nothing, nothing in comparison with a passion that should drive his people for his kingdom. Jesus is passionate about the salvation of the lost. He is passionate about right worship. And finally, Jesus is passionate about the authoritative teaching of his word. At the end of chapter 19, the people are sitting at his feet as he's teaching in the temple and they're hanging on every word. And then what we see from that point all the way through chapter 21, Kent Hughes observes this and we will as well. From here to the end of chapter 21, the temple was Jesus' pulpit. He owned it. It was his. And by clearing the temple, Jesus is restoring the right place of his authoritative word to where it belongs. Right in the middle of worship, right in the central place of God's people, in the center of worship, in the center of our hearts, in the center of our homes, Jesus is restoring his authoritative word to its rightful place, the center of worship. That's what our 16th century reformers, our forefathers sought to do. In their battle cry, sola scriptura, the word of God alone is our only rule of faith and practice. And that's why today in many churches, in most churches, the pulpit is front and center. Symbolic of what Jesus has done here in the temple, of clearing the temple and saying, here is my pulpit, here is the place where God's people gather to hear my voice. And what was true in the first century by the Spirit and by His word is still true today to him. He gives ears to hear what the Spirit says through his word. Jesus was passionate about the word, but it's his authoritative word, and so the question came, so where'd you get your authority? The leaders are a bit jealous. The leaders are confused. and say, Jesus, you tell us, who, who gave you this authority to do these things? And as Jesus so often did when he answered sarcastic, unbelieving questions, he answered with a counter question. Now, tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from 
man. Now, the religious leaders were stuck. Jesus has just impaled them on the horns of a dilemma. Because if they say John the Baptist's authority was not from God, the people who believed he was a prophet would kill them. But if he said the authority was from God, they were stuck as well. Then why didn't you believe him and why didn't you subject yourself and submit yourself to his baptism? They knew they had been had, so they got together. They began to mumble against one another and basically said, we don't know. And so Jesus said, neither will I tell you by whose authority I have done these things. Later, he would tell his disciples and the world, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me, and therefore go and make disciples of all nations. By clearing the temple, Jesus was demonstrating his authority and his passion for the centrality of the word of God among his people to be restored to its rightful place in worship in hearts and in homes. And so again, we have to ask the question, does my passions reflect the passions of Jesus? Do I have this passion for the word? Do I hunger and thirst with a passion for God's word? Do we cry out with the psalmist in the spirit of Jesus, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation. It's what I love to think about and mull over both day and night. Do we cry out in the spirit of Jeremiah? When your word came to me, I did eat it. Why? Because it became my joy and my delight. Or with John Wesley, who once declared, oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. It's all I need. It's enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, a man of one book. The people at Jesus' feet were hanging on every word of Jesus. Oh, that, that would describe us more. Have you hungered and thirsted and tasted the goodness of the Lord and the sweetness of his word. Jesus is passionate that we do. He was passionate about the salvation of the lost. He was passionate about the right worship of God. And he was passionate about the restoration of the rightful place of his word among God's people, the worshiping people. But what do we do when we find our passions are twisted and distorted and everywhere but where Jesus' heart is? What do we do when we find that our passions fall far short of His? What do we do, and maybe once they were somewhat there, but we see our passions waning? When our affections of our hearts are tethered more to the things of this earth, than to the passions of Christ. What do we do? Where do we go? First, I think we have to be honest and we have to confess and recognize that genuine passion for Christ and for His kingdom cannot simply be manufactured by man. They cannot be fabricated by the flesh or simply evoked by emotion, but only through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Genuine, Christ-like, kingdom-oriented, Gospel passion is produced in the hearts of those truly born again by the Spirit of God only through the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. So what do we do? 
We recognize our weakness. We recognize that our passions fall short. And we plead, Holy Spirit, fall down upon me. Holy Spirit, would you work in me that longing, that ability, enabling me to abide in Christ by faith. To cultivate a deepening relationship with Him. Through the means of grace, through time in prayer, through times in your word, through times in gathered prayer. I'm convinced when a church ceases to become a house of prayer, it ceases to become a house of holy passion. We find ourselves crying out, Oh Christ, grant me the holy passion of your heart. You see, as we do and as we pray such that Christ himself might become our passion. And friends, when Jesus becomes our passion, when he truly becomes our passion, then the things of which he is passionate about will also become the things about which we are passionate. Paul Tripp, in his book, A Quest for More, Living Something Bigger Than You, said this, Only love for Christ has power to incapacitate the sturdy love for self that is the bane of every sinner. And only the grace of Christ has the power to produce that love. And I might add, only an apprehension of Christ's love for us can produce such love, affection, and passion for Him and for the things of which he is passionate. Oh, may Jesus, by the ministry of his Holy Spirit, enable our hearts to beat after his with a passion for the lost, a passion for the right worship of our God, and a passion for the centrality of the authority of his word in the midst of his covenant people, his worshiping people, and in the midst of our hearts as well, as we grow in our love for Him in response to His love for us. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that You would, through the ministry of Your Holy Spirit, remind us how far short our passions fall of Yours, how twisted and distorted and poorly directed they are when we find ourselves more passionate about our comfort, when we find ourselves more passionate about our living situations, when we find ourselves more passionate about our hobbies and about even football in this place. Lord, lift our sights, and by the ministry of your Word and Spirit, help us to fall more deeply in love with Jesus such that He becomes our passion. And when He increasingly becomes our passion, then we will become passionate about the things of which He is passionate. So grant us, Father, we pray, more love for Christ. May it begin there, may it do so today, through the ministry of Your Word and Your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.